I think whether somebody is on the other side of the world from a completely different culture from yours, different country, or whether they're a fellow citizen isn't really that important morally as compared with the differences in their needs. And again, if you're a citizen of an affluent country, the amount of difference you can make when helping somebody who's in extreme poverty, who's living on $2 a day, there's just so much more difference you can make because of the laws of diminishing marginal utility, helping somebody like that than helping somebody in your own country who might be classified as being in poverty in an affluent country, but that probably means they're on $20,000 a year maybe, where modest amounts are not going to make life-changing differences. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Normally, I start off this podcast by telling you about something I'm excited about, something I've observed about the world, some opinion that I have about an important thing going on right now. Well, today is a little bit different. We've been doing a real push on the podcast, a real push to get the best possible guests, the most interesting conversation partners to do an even better job editing the conversations. And I think it's been a great success. We are starting to grow our audience, but we wanted to grow further. We want to get even more people into this community, even more people to share these conversations. And so if I can ask you a favor, pause the podcast for a moment and send three friends a brief email saying, I've been listening to this podcast. I've been listening to these conversations with people like Peter Singer today, with people like Frank Fukuyama, a couple of weeks ago, of people like Rachel Fraser, the young philosopher at Oxford, who had a great conversation with me about standpoint epistemology, I think you'd really enjoy this. I think you'd enjoy some of the great conversations with people from all over the political spectrum who are coming up in the next months. People, some of whom I agree with, some of whom I agree with less, like Noam Chomsky or John McWhorter. So pause the podcast for a moment right now, send that email to three of your friends, and then come back to the program. Thank you so much. And I promise this is the last annoying little pitch like that I'm going to do in a good long while. My guest today is one of the most renowned living philosophers. Peter Singer is a professor at Princeton. He is the founding co-editor of the Journal of Controversial Ideas, has recently founded a charity focused on effective altruism called The Life You Can Save, and he has just been awarded the 2021 Bergrun Prize for Philosophy and Culture. Peter Singer and I had a conversation about the nature of utilitarianism, which is often, I think, misunderstood, just getting the basics out on how the most prominent utilitarian philosopher of our century thinks about the nature of that enterprise, as well as the implications of his philosophical commitments for questions from what we owe to people who are far away, to what we owe to animals, to the case for free speech. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Peter Singer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I think there's a very interesting incongruence between how a lot of people in the public sphere think about utilitarianism, which they often think of as, you know, part of the dismal science of economics, as something that is just maximizing money over everything else, and the way that you have made a case for utilitarianism over time and what you take to be the moral implications of being utilitarian. So what's the sort of humanitarian do-goodery case for being a utilitarian and seeing the world through utilitarian eyes? Well, one way of thinking about this, of course, is that looking back on it, the utilitarians have been on the right side of so many reforming issues. I think utilitarianism is far from being a kind of dry economic science or anything like that is actually a reforming impulse that, of course, you know, in a way goes back a long way before Jeremy Bentham, but was certainly made explicit by Bentham. And Bentham and then the later utilitarians have been against slavery for women's rights. They've been for the rights of gay people long before anybody else dared even to talk about that. They've been against cruelty to animals. They've been for prison reform. 
There's a long list of things that utilitarians have been trying to reduce the amount of suffering in the world in relation to. And I, you know, very happy to be part of that tradition and to think of utilitarianism not merely as something for philosophers to talk about, but as something to motivate people to do things about. And so explain to those listeners who I'm sure have heard of the term utilitarian but may not be comfortable giving a dictionary definition of it, how to think about that moral tradition. What are its basic commitments and how can they help orient us towards the right action in the world? Right. Well, the fundamental commitment is that what we ought to do is to do the actions that will have the best consequences, that uh, rather than obey certain rules no matter what, you know, rather than do justice even if the heavens fall, we should think about what the consequences of our actions will be and do what will have the best consequences. That could also be a definition of consequentialism, which is the genus of which utilitarianism is a particular species. And you can distinguish utilitarianism from the other members of the consequentialist genus by saying it's the view that when we talk about good consequences, we mean improving the welfare of all of those affected. Using you know, welfare as a broad term, the classical utilitarians talked about happiness or pleasure and the absence of pain, happiness and the absence of misery. So thinking along those lines is what makes people's lives or the lives of sentient beings in general, what makes them go better. Those are the things that utilitarians specifically are looking for when they ask what action will have the best consequences. And distinguish for us, if you will, how that's different from what people might have encountered in Econ 101, which I think often gives utilitarianism a sort of bad name because people think of it as we should just maximize individual preferences irrespective of the consequences of a particular policy or the action of a corporation. What's the difference between the sort of thinking about utility in Econ 101 and the basic utilitarian outlook on the world. Depending, I suppose, a bit on what the Econ 101 course you took was, it may be that it sees the utilities in narrowly material terms, in terms of you know something that can be put in dollars so that you can compare apples and oranges. But it might not do that. It might talk, as you suggested, about preferences and that is a form of utilitarianism because that's one way of thinking about people's well-being, that if you give people what they want, what they prefer, then that makes them better off. The classical utilitarians would not have agreed with that, though, because they are interested, as I said, in what produces happiness and the absence of suffering or pleasure and the absence of pain. And preferences don't always do that. And I think a lot of economists when they do just talk about preferences, they're not really asking questions like, how were those preferences created? Were they created by companies trying to give you certain preferences so that you will buy their products? And then not really looking at whether those products are going to improve your happiness and well-being in the long run. So I think that there are a lot of further questions that we ought to be asking, which perhaps the Econ 101 course doesn't typically ask. And for the economists in the audience, I don't want to caricature Econ 101 either. What about the fear that some people will have that aiming for a maximization of happiness is often not the right way of, in fact, reaching it? I think that's often true in our personal lives, right? If I structure my life around what makes me most happy in any particular moment. Perhaps even if I structure my life around what's going to make me happiest decade to decade, I may be less likely to actually lead a happy life than if I say, I have a conception of myself as having certain kinds of duties in the world. I have a conception of myself as trying to advance certain ideals in the world. And it may be that actually trying to fill those duties or to pursue those ideals is going to lead me to meaningful activities in the world, but have the happy byproduct of giving me a relatively content life. And you might try to formulate a similar objection at the level of public policy, that perhaps if politicians are trying to think, how do we keep our constituents as happy as possible? That's not as good a way of actually creating a healthy society in which people can flourish than one that is guided by different kinds of values. How do you respond to those kinds of concerns about utilitarianism? 
Well, I accept that some of those points that you made are true. The Greeks were already aware of what they called the paradox of hedonism. That is that if you aim directly at pleasure, you're less likely to actually achieve it than if you find something worthwhile to do and and work at that and succeed in that and make some progress in it. That is likely to bring more happiness. And that's something that I've emphasized in my work about altruism and about helping people in poverty, for example, that it's likely to be more satisfying to people doing that, to identify with that goal, than to take the money that they could have donated to help people in poverty and instead buy luxury holidays with it and sit on the sun in a nice resort, which after a while will pull, I think, and provide a less satisfactory life. So that's all true. And something like that may be true at the level of public policy as well. This is not, though, an objection to utilitarianism, because utilitarianism is very open to evidence about what will produce the best consequences. And it is interested in the best consequences in the long run for all of those affected. So to the extent that these things are true, utilitarianism will say, yes, don't think about maximizing utility at every turn. But Think about it in the long run. Think about the kinds of things that will bring you satisfaction and where there's evidence from social science research that it will bring satisfaction and do that. So to some extent, to use a term that Derek Parfit, the Oxford philosopher, used, utilitarianism may be self-effacing or partially self-effacing. So that is, it might actually tell you not to put it up front all the time in all your decisions, but to get some general principles and then follow those things. This is a kind of distinction between utilitarianism as a criterion of rightness or wrongness, as opposed to utilitarianism as a sort of invariant set of rules or standards. So on the first conception, if I understand it right, you examine a public policy, you examine an action from the point of view of a philosopher, and the ultimate question you're asking is, is that maximizing something like the sum of happiness over pain? But you may in fact think that having a social norm of altruism, of having a social norm that legislators care about things other than happiness under certain circumstances, may be the kinds of norms we need in order to actually maximize happiness over time. And because those norms do in fact serve to maximize happiness, they are the right norms for their self-effacing in the kind of way you were saying. Is that broadly right? Yes, that's broadly right. The utilitarian view is the ultimate criterion of what's right and wrong, but it's not necessarily the best guide to apply all the time in day-to-day circumstances. And I think we see that in lots of contexts, that we want to get absorbed in activities for their own sake. A simple example would be if you're playing some sporting event, you don't really want to be thinking about, well, will it maximize utility if my team wins? You know, maybe I'm on the Iceland football team and I'm playing against India and, you know, there's so many more Indians, I shouldn't try to win. But it's not going to be a good game if people play with that attitude. So I think sometimes you have to put those things aside and think about what you're actually engaged in and get involved in it. It's funny because when I was a kid and much more interested in sport than I am now, I did sometimes have that thought. I had the thought of, you know, this team has so many fans and the other team has few fans. And shouldn't I hope for that other team to win, even for my allegiance to some extent lies with the other team. And so I was sort of trying to work through this moral dilemma very poorly at the age of eight or nine. So it's funny that you bring that up as an example. One of the things that I find interesting about your work and Shishanism as a broader moral tradition is that it can lead you in surprising directions. But a lot of the time, different philosophical outlooks sort of come together in relatively neat packages of views, whereas by the nature of it, you might have a quite radical and quite surprising views about what changes in the world do or don't serve to maximize happiness over pain. So I want to take us through a few of the interesting stances you've come up with over the course of your career. I think one of your first very famous papers argues that our obligations to help people are much less constrained by the extent to which we know them, by the extent to which they're geographically proximate, by the extent to which they're culturally proximate, than we might think. What is the argument that actually moral duties much broader and perhaps more extensive than many of us might imagine? 
Right. That was one of my first papers called Famine, Affluence and Morality. And in it, I tried to motivate people to think about their duties to strangers by asking people to imagine that they were walking past a shallow pond and they saw that a small child had fallen into the pond and there seemed to be nobody else around who was looking after the child or was going to pull the child out of the pond. So you think, well, should I rescue this child? Or presumably most people would immediately think, I I must rescue this child. But then you stop and think that you're going to ruin some expensive clothes that you've put on because you're going somewhere special and you don't have time to get rid of them. So there is some cost to you in doing this. But I assume that my readers, and I've since put this to many other audiences too, and the assumption seems correct, would still think that it would be terribly wrong to let the child drown because you don't want to ruin your expensive clothes. And yet, you know, the child is a stranger. Nobody has asked you to look after the child. You haven't taken any responsibility for the child. So I use that example to suggest that if you can do something that is really significant, like saving a child's life at a small cost to yourself, but a cost that is in no way comparable to the harm that you're preventing, then we ought to do it. And of course, that was an appeal to people's intuitions, but I think you can look at that as a general moral principle and most people would endorse it. Yet that is something like the situation that we, meaning by we, people who are reasonably affluent and have some resources to spare, are in relation to people in extreme poverty in the world, people whose children might die from malaria or people who might go blind from trachoma, which can be cheaply prevented. So I then want to argue that even though psychologically we certainly more inclined to help people close to us, those we know, those we see directly in front of us, but that when we think about this ethically, we can see that those aren't really important moral differences. I mean, I'm not saying they don't make any difference. They may, and especially, of course, your family and those you're really close to and have special bonds to. You could argue that that does make an important difference. But once you get beyond that, I think whether somebody is on the other side of the world from a completely different culture from yours, different country, or whether they're a fellow citizen isn't really that important morally as compared with the differences in their needs. And again, if you're a citizen of an affluent country, the amount of difference you can make when helping somebody who's in extreme poverty, who's living on $2 a day, there's just so much more difference you can make because of the laws of diminishing marginal utility, helping somebody like that than helping somebody in your own country who might be classified as being in poverty in an affluent country, but that probably means they're on $20,000 a year maybe, where modest amounts are not going to make life-changing differences. Let me put you a question that's very much a question of public policy rather than moral philosophy. Because I think one of the worries that I have about the way in which philosophers talk about this, and I'm trained in political theory and political philosophy myself, is that there's always this sort of, you know, other things being equal little clause, which does a lot of work, right? So I certainly agree with the bulk of this argument. But of course, it assumes that I'm in front of this pond, I see this girl, I'm pretty confident that I can jump in and rescue her. And all of those seem like straightforward assumptions to make. I wonder whether some of the resistance that people have to drawing the inference, which I think on philosophical terms follows very, very compellingly from your premises, is that you can say, well, look, by the same token, instead of ruining your suit and that'll cost you $100, you can send those $100 to Oxfam or some other kind of international aid organization and you can save a kid that's far away. Why wouldn't you do that? And of course, the answer is you should do it. But part of your objection may be that other things are not, in fact, equal and that sending $100 to Oxfam is not going to have the intended impact. And when I think of something like the conversation I've had on this podcast with William Easterly, who wrote, among others, the book The White Man's Burden, Why the West's efforts to aid the rest have done so much ill and so little good, that really puts the emphasis on these other things might not be equal. And there may be at least, I suppose, a utility to focusing on the local, because it's much easier for us to estimate whether I'm going to save a girl in the little pond in front of me than whether those $100 that I'm sending to Oxfam will in fact do good or might even, as Easterly argues, wind up doing harm. 
So firstly, Bill Eastley was really talking about government aid. He's not really talking about donating to Oxfam or to other effective charities. And he no doubt is right about a substantial part of government aid, although I think that some countries' official aid departments have raised their game and taken more care about trying to see that what they're doing is having a significant beneficial effect. But really, that issue is exactly what the effective altruism movement has been tackling in terms of the effective part of it. You know, there are two parts. It's encouraging people to be more altruistic, but it's encouraging people to use their resources as effectively as possible. And since Easterly published The White Man's Burden, in fact, we've had this growth of organisations that are independently assessing non-government organisations working in the field, particularly of extreme poverty, and making it easy for us to know which of the organisations that are really having a positive impact. I'm thinking particularly of GiveWell, but an organisation that I founded, The Life You Can Save, is also doing this drawing on work that other independent assessors have done. So I think over the last decade, it's really become much easier to go online to one of these organisations and be able to be confident that your $100 or whatever it might be is doing good, that it's preventing children getting malaria, that it's preventing people going blind, that it's helping people to get out of extreme poverty, you know, a whole range of good things. So this is also your latest book, The Life You Can Save, How to Do Your Part to End World Poverty. What is the driving logic of the effective altruism movement? It seems like something that's very, very intuitive, that it's good to be altruistic. And when you're being altruistic, you should pay attention to whether you're actually helping people or just giving money to something to make yourself feel good without worrying too much about whether it's having the intended impact. And yet it's recently come in for a bunch of criticism. What's the case for how effective altruism can help us actually save people in poverty and improve the state of the world? The case is that a lot of people don't realize how much good they can do at relatively small cost, or in fact, arguably going back to where we began this discussion, not at any overall cost to themselves, but actually benefit to themselves by making their lives a little more purposeful and fulfilling. So there are these two insights. One is that we live in a world with great inequality and there's something that we can do to help those who are much worse off than we are if we're among the better off percentage. And secondly, that people don't realize how much difference it makes to select the very best organizations as against selecting just the average organization. And I'm not here talking about the fact that some organizations may be much worse than average and maybe fraudulent. And there's a small number of organizations like that, but it is very small. But simply in terms of really effective organizations, let me give you an example that uh, has been used in the effective altruism movement. A lot of people think that giving to organizations that train guide dogs to help the blind is a good thing to do. And there are these little dog-like boxes around places at airports. I remember seeing them where you can drop coins into the head of the dog and you think you've done something really good, or you can give more substantial sums, of course. And there's no doubt that training guide dogs to help blind people is good. It does help blind people. But it's quite expensive because it takes a lot of time to train a guide dog and you also then have to train the person to work with the dog. So it's been estimated that it costs about 40,000 US dollars to train one guide dog to work with one blind person. Now, consider then preventing blindness in a low-income country. For example, preventing trachoma, which is the leading cause of blindness. There have been estimates that that can be done for as little as $25. Well, let's say that that's too low now. Some of the low-hanging fruit's been picked since that study was done. Maybe it costs $100. But if it costs $100 to prevent somebody going blind, then for the $40,000 that it takes to train the guide dog, you could prevent 400 people from becoming blind. And yet anybody would agree that the difference between being blind and not blind is actually greater than the difference between being blind and having a guide dog and being blind and not having a guide dog, even though there's different. So it's at least 400 times better value to donate to one of these organizations like the Fred Hollows Foundation or SIVA, they're recommended by the life you can save, which are doing this work in 
preventing blindness or in some cases restoring sight for people who have cataracts, also very inexpensive, rather than donating to the organization training dogs for blind people. Since you started speaking about dogs, let me ask about another topic you've written a lot about, which is the well-being of animals. You know, this is both an important topic because of the incredible amount of suffering that animals in the world experience. But I think it's also theoretically interesting because one of the appeals of utilitarianism is how simple its basic principle is, right? You can sort of understand the basic instinct very, very quickly, And for its application empirically can sometimes be hard. The question of whether this or that policy is likely to maximize the sum of happiness over pain is by no means an easy question. You sort of get what the criterion is quite straightforwardly. But like I think any other moral philosophy, it has certain boundary issues, certain issues that ask about who's included and excluded in the definition. And so one question is, how should we think about the well-being or the suffering of a dog relative to the well-being or the suffering of a human? How should we think of the well-being or the suffering of a fly relative to that of a human? So how do you answer those questions and how does that lead you to a pretty expansive view of our moral duties towards animals? Well, firstly, let me say, although we did get into this topic because I was talking about dogs, I'm not really particularly concerned about the well-being of dogs because I think dogs are generally well-treated as compared to pigs and chickens and cows, plus the number of animals in intensive farms that is confined indoors all of their lives in very crowded conditions that are not at all suited to their needs is just vast. You know, it's something like 60 billion birds and mammals that are raised and killed in factory farms each year. And if we include aquaculture of fish, we probably add another 100 billion to it. So, you know, I think that really dwarfs the amount of suffering that is inflicted on dogs and other animals that we care about because they are companion animals. I completely agree. And I was really just looking for the elegant podcaster's link to another topic that I wanted to make sure we cover. But I did, to my sadness, discover recently that the ratio of dogs that live as companion animals to those that don't, which either don't have a home, are wild dogs, or have been abandoned, is something like one to five. So actually, the dog we think of, which is surely one of the most fortunate animals on the planet Earth, which is the sort of pampered family dog, is more the exception than the rule, which at least raises some moral concern in the soul of somebody like me who loves dogs. But I certainly agree that the moral problem that poses is dwarfed by that of the suffering of factory animals. Yes, right. But you then are asking a, a question about where the boundaries of this concern are. So, you know, granted that I'm, I'm concerned about the factory farm animals in particular, but you can well ask where are the boundaries. I mentioned fish in what I said before. Um, I do believe that fish are also capable of feeling pain. They're vertebrates. They have nervous systems somewhat similar to mine. When we get beyond vertebrates, it does get more difficult. You mentioned a fly. Once we talk about insects, then I think it's really hard to know whether insects are conscious beings. It's certainly possible that they are, but their behavior in some ways is more pre-programmed, not always. But And again, we're talking about a vast array of different species, different orders. So maybe the case that some of them can feel pain and that others can't. And I certainly would not exclude all invertebrates because I think the octopus is clearly a conscious being. Octopus is clearly a being able to solve novel puzzles, work things out. And that's quite remarkable because the separation point in evolutionary history between us and the octopus is, you know, maybe six to seven hundred million years back. An octopus is a mollusk, so it's like an oyster. But in terms of its intelligence, it's far closer to us than it is to oysters. So. There are all sorts of differences. And, you know, having mentioned oysters, let me say, I think it's very unlikely that oysters are capable of feeling pain. Their nervous system is too rudimentary. And anyway, you would have to ask, why would they have evolved a nervous system with a sense of pain, given that they can't run away from sources of danger anyway? So I think you have to look at all of these different invertebrates on a kind of case-by-case basis. You have to admit that there are a lot of things that we don't know at this stage. So I would give the benefit of that where we say we don't know. You mentioned the fly. I'm not going to you know, pull the wings off a fly for the fun of it. But it's true that sometimes if 
flies are a hazard around, I might reach for something to swat them with quickly to get rid of them. There are biting flies, you know, when you go to the beach in Australia, as I do when I'm there over the summer, it's a little hard to lie there and let things bite you. I guess you can use a repellent, but if I don't have a repellent, I'll slap something that is biting my legs, certainly. So if there is a question about suffering, you try to make sure there isn't suffering, but in terms of actually quickly killing something, I'm not troubled about doing that. What about a harder moral dilemma? So one is the suffering of a fly versus your comfort at the beach. I agree that that's a relatively low stakes moral dilemma. What about people who love eating meat, who are very used to that, and who recognize perhaps some abstract duty not to do that because it helps to perpetuate the system of factory farming you rightly deplore, but who also think, you know, I mean, my eating the steak or not eating the steak doesn't really have that much of a systemic difference and perhaps my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. And I think there's a lot of people who fall into that category who are somewhat queasy about eating meat, who think, you know, if I was a moral Satan, I certainly shouldn't eat meat. But let's not think too hard about the suffering involved and, you know, the world is as it is and I'm going to go enjoy my steak. What would you say to people in that category? So there are many things that I might say. One is I do think that they're contributing to not just one bad thing, that is not just to the suffering of animals, but also to climate change, particularly if it's a steak. If it's come from a ruminant, a cow, then it's made a significant contribution to greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that's something else that we ought to be thinking about. Then, you know, if people really say, well, it's really important to me, I you know, can't imagine living happily without eating meat. I think probably that's because they haven't really tried in most cases, but let's just grant that that might be the case. Then we could still ask where they're getting their meat from. It certainly doesn't have to be a factory found product. And at least as far as the animal's suffering is concerned, if they're getting it from free-range animals, I think that's significantly better. That shows, I would say, a step towards being what has been sometimes called a conscientious carnivore or conscientious omnivore, I guess we should say. Michael Pollan talked about the omnivore's dilemma in his book of that title and I think talked about, let's say, more ethical ways of eating than just going to the supermarket and buying what's cheap, which will invariably have come from intensive forms of animal raising. What is your hunch? I think this is an interesting topic to ask us about, but it's really a broader question, on the likelihood of moral progress. Do you envisage that 100 to 200 years from now, people will be horrified by the idea that the ancestors ate meat and kept animals in the deplorable conditions they're in? Or do you think they might think, oh, you know, people were strangely squeamish, 100 or 200 years ago, writing these books about how we shouldn't eat meat, that's just the nature of the world and that's not worry too much. Do you have any set of systematic beliefs about whether we're likely to be making that kind of moral progress over time or not? Yeah, I do. I take a long-term view. I've written a book called The Expanding Circle and what the title of that book takes a quote from the late 19th, early 20th century historian W.E.H. Leckie, who wrote the history of European morals from Augustus from Rome onwards. And he has this idea that the circle of morality has been expanding from first a tribal ethos, then to a national one, and finally one that includes all human beings. And I think that that is broadly correct, that there has been that outward expansion, that you can look at Tribal moralities, I remember when I was relatively young going to New Guinea and up in the highlands there being told by people that there was a tribe in this particular valley and, you know, within their living memory, I'm not saying at the time that I was there, but within their living memory, if you had strayed over the ridge of mountains into that valley, you were liable to be killed because you were not part of their group. So that was a morality, I assume, for long periods, not everywhere maybe, but some parts of the world. And I think we have progressed. It's interesting that Teleki, in talking about the progress in his time, doesn't talk about the position of women. That's something that came later, I guess. It was around in his time, but it developed later. Certainly doesn't talk about expanding the circle to include people of different sexual orientations or anything like that. So, you know, we've continued to make that progress through the 20th and now early 21st century. And I do believe that we'll make it eventually and we'll 
expand our views to include animals in ways that we don't include them now. Let's change gears a little bit. You helped to found something called the Journal of Controversial Ideas. And some of your theses have proven to be very controversial, including some of your views about the morality of abortion and the killing of young babies. What is the utilitarian case for creating a culture in which ideas that seem abhorrent to many, ideas that seem dangerous to many, ideas that some would argue impose real harm on others, need to be able to be stated openly and publicly without fear? I think that case was made by the 19th century utilitarian John Stuart Mill in his work on liberty. That's the classical statement of that view of the importance of freedom of expression and also of freedom of individuality to live as we please if we are, if we are not harming others. But specifically on the issue of, of free expression, Mill pointed out that when we suppress ideas, we very often do so wrongly and gave many historical examples where people had been very confident that something was true and right and suppressed contrary ideas. But it turned out later that those ideas were, in fact, the right ones. And I think that's still a valid argument that the way to get at the truth about things is to have a free contest of ideas and to allow people to sort through those ideas. And, you know, I think we can add a little bit to Mill and talk about using standards of rigor and evidence and scientific method to sort out which are the true claims and which are not. I think we have to add as well that we should be doing this in a civil and respectful way that isn't simply an attempt to stir up hatred. Mill himself already, to some extent, made that point because he said that freedom to say that the corn dealers are people who starve the poor, that you might have freedom to write that as an article and publish it in a paper, but you don't have freedom to say that in front of an angry mob standing outside the houses of the corn dealers. So he already drew this distinction between like whipping up people's emotions and trying to put arguments. And I think we should bear that in mind when we consider laws about racial hatred, racial vilification. We don't have those laws in the United States because of the First Amendment, but there are a number of countries, including my own Australia, that do have laws against racial vilification. And I think that's reasonable as long as you really take a narrow view of what vilification is. It's not simply trying to lay out evidence that suggests that some policies relating to minorities are wrong. It is a matter of stirring up hatred and arousing emotional feelings against them. But don't those laws fall on the wrong side of Mill's distinction, which is to say that certainly America is a little bit of a special case because of its constitutional tradition and so on, but I can see the case in Europe and Australia, and to some extent within the United States for laws that say, you know, you are not allowed to go, say, to the house of the leader of a minority community and then, you know, say things about how abhorrent that group is to a mob that is likely to go and attack that person, right? But when we're talking about laws that restrict in general what you can say about that group or members of that group, outside of the context of specific incitement, aren't you precisely falling on the side of the analogy where Mill's saying you can say corn dealers, you know, are murdering people? Now, of course, personally, I find the view that some ethnic or religious group is per se bad to be more repellent than a view about the nature of corn dealers as a group. But the distinction you invoke seems to imply precisely that we should be careful about those kind of general laws unless we're talking about specific contexts of incitement, doesn't it? No, because I emphasized vilification and stirring up hatred. I think that's different from making general statements about minorities. Take an example like Charles Murray's book, The Bell Curve, and he's somebody who's been attacked for speech and been denied freedom of speech. I may not agree with that, but I don't regard it as an effort to stir up hatred or vilify. It's quite a dense book with lots of statistics and graphs and evidence and so on. If anybody were to say that that should not be allowed because it violates laws against racial vilification, I think that's a mistake. That's why I said that the laws have to be narrowly interpreted to make this distinction between what is vilifying in the proper sense of that term and what is trying to mount a case with evidence that existing policies are not the right ones. 
there's sometimes what I take to be a misconception that slippery slope arguments are inadmissible or that they are some kind of logical fallacy. Now, I think often slippery slope arguments are made poorly in contexts where they're not particularly convincing, but there's nothing in itself intellectually legitimate about them. And I do worry about the slippery slope in this context, which is to say that we both see the extent to which concept creep often takes place in which the realm of what is forbidden from being spoken radically expands because, for example, the idea of what constitutes incitement or harm radically expands, as I believe it has in all kinds of discursive contexts over the last 10 or 20 years. And secondly, because here we're speaking in a context in which certain people and institutions have real incentives in trying to manipulate or abuse concepts. To me, the biggest concern about freedom of speech is that if you are opening the door to any form of censorship, you're always opening the door to particular already powerful people exercising forms of censorship, since it will always be either the state or some very influential private company or perhaps some committee of people who are part of some form of political or financial or other elite who actually make the decisions about what is permitted and what is not permitted. Or, of course, it may be judges who are applying the law. So how do we avoid those worries about the slippery slope in a context in which the decisions about what the exact scope of such prohibitions will be is likely to be made by, you know, societal insiders rather than societal outsiders. I'm not sure that there is a way of completely avoiding that. There are definitely going to be borderline cases that have to be adjudicated in some way, unless you simply say that there are no limits on freedom of expression. You could do that, but then you effectively allow Nazi-style racial propaganda to be out there and I'm not sure that that's a better outcome than having the laws occasionally interpreted too strictly and therefore losing a little bit of free speech that I would think ought to be there. And and I think typically the pendulum is likely to swing back. In other words, the slippery slope idea suggests that there's going to be a steady progression down against freedom of speech. I haven't seen that looking at these racial vilification laws in various countries. Yes, they have sometimes seemed to broaden, sometimes broaden too much in my view, but they have then tended to pull back. So you're balancing costs and benefits here, and it's difficult to do, and I'm not completely confident that what I'm saying is the right way to do it, but I would not uh, like to allow open slather for any kind of racial hatred propaganda to be around. I have a question about your role conception and the role conception of other people in your profession, which is to say that, you know, I imagine you think of yourself primarily as a philosopher, but you do also want to have an impact on the world. You've written on topics that have very important practical import. You have founded an organization, The Life You Can Save. And of course, these two things can often go together, but they can also butt up against each other. You can have moments in which you feel that pursuing an intellectual argument to its logical conclusion, can somehow empower the wrong people or complicate the case for a practical action that you want taken, all things considered. And I have an impression that when I look at academia, including the field of philosophy, but also some other fields, that tension is quite strongly present in some fields at the moment, where certain questions are not pursued, where certain people are vilified, because asking those questions or taking seriously those people might supposedly do damage to a cause that's considered to be important. So I guess, how do you think about the potential of these different conceptions to come into tension with each other? And what advice would you give to young generations of scholars that want to be politically engaged, but that also want to put their pursuit of truth above everything else? I agree that there is that tension. I don't feel it in myself that much, maybe because I'm fairly senior in my career. I have a tenured position, so I'm not really too worried about pursuing ideas to their logical conclusion if I think they're right. And I'm not worried about the negative impact that that's likely to have on me. And I've done that, obviously, over my career. You mentioned before my views about allowing parents to choose euthanasia for their severely disabled 
newborn infant if they think that is the best thing for the child and for their family, which you know, has caused a lot of controversy. But in the end, I think that that was the right thing to argue. I think I couldn't really have, I couldn't have consistently held other views that I hold about issues about the value of life and my critique of standard views of the sanctity of human life without drawing those conclusions in at least some circumstances. So I would encourage people to do that, to put the role of pursuing truth as they see it first in terms of trying not to be too worried about the consequences for themselves. But if there is a real concern, then that's really why, together with Francesca Minerva and Jeff McMahon, I co-founded the Journal of Controversial Ideas because that journal is an academic journal which uses peer review and is looking for well-argued articles, but it allows people to publish under a pseudonym if they wish to do so. So if they're worried that something they have to say is going to harm their career or maybe lead to personal attacks on them, which has certainly happened, well, it's happened to me in one case, but it's happened to my co-editor, Francesca Minerva, for her views about abortion and infanticide too, and it's happened to several other people, of course, then they can get those ideas out there if the climate of opinion changes and they then want to be acknowledged as the author of those ideas, then we're happy to confirm that they are. And in that way, we are trying to provide a space where people can say things that are well argued and defended, but in the present climate of opinion might lead to them being attacked in ways that would be very difficult for them. Let me ask you a last question on a slightly different topic, which is that you know, I think there is an assumption among many young people, probably not the majority of young people, but perhaps the majority of politically very active young people, that there's something immoral about capitalism, that our basic economic system leads to deeply immoral forms of behavior, that it certainly leads to the suffering of many people in the world, of animals. What is your utilitarian view of capitalism? Is capitalism one of the drivers of the expanding circle you talked about earlier, or is the ill repute of capitalism justified? I don't think there is a utilitarian view on capitalism because there are certainly uh, utilitarians who would be very much opposed to capitalism. You know, there's an interpretation of Marx that says uh, he was a kind of utilitarian. I actually don't think that that's really correct, but you could certainly have utilitarians who support the kind of conclusions that we should abolish capitalism and aim to have a much more egalitarian society. And of course, you can have utilitarians who say that capitalism has lifted hundreds of millions of people, perhaps billions of people out of poverty and has been the best thing that could have happened. Personally, I think the truth is somewhere in between. I don't think that we have a better system than capitalism at present for producing the goods and services that people want and need. But I also think that capitalism does have tendencies that are harmful. It promotes self-seeking in materialist ways that are not good for society and maybe not conducive to general happiness. It also, of course, I think doesn't do enough to assist people in poverty. Now, we can have forms of capitalism that people here in the United States would describe as socialism, but that basically like Scandinavian societies that are undoubtedly still capitalist societies, but have a much stronger social welfare net for people who fall through the cracks of capitalism. And I certainly think that that's an advantage, a better form of capitalism, if you like, capitalism with a safety net that is better than capitalism without a safety net. So perhaps those kinds of systems are the best that we have been able to develop so far on a large scale. Maybe we'll find something better at some point, but I don't see that as happening anytime soon. So the final thing I want to say on that is that sometimes when I talk about effective altruism, as we were talking about before, and talk about helping you know, various effective organizations, the Against Malaria Foundation, which provides bed nets for people so their children don't get malaria, and these organizations that prevent blindness and many others. And then somebody will stand up and say, look, isn't really the problem capitalism isn't that what's producing poverty and you know my answer to that is well firstly you know i'm not sure that that's true but let's just assume it is true what are you actually proposing to do about it are you going to let children die of malaria and people go blind 
while we wait to overthrow capitalism? Because who knows when that's going to be? People have been talking about that for a long time, and I can't see that we've got any closer to it. So it seems to me that that kind of revolutionary rhetoric is almost irrelevant in the present context, because I haven't seen anybody with a real plan for how we're going to get rid of capitalism. So I think that we have to try to do the best we can within the system that we've got and are likely to have for some time to come. So speaking about how to do the best we can, you know, one of the criticisms that someone's made of utilitarianism is that it sort of demands infinite action, that there's no inherent limiting principle to how altruistically you should behave, short of, you know, one's doing something for others is more costly than doing something for yourself, but that takes a very, very long time if you're living in an affluent country and there's very poor people in the world. What do you think listeners of this podcast should take away from our conversation for their day-to-day -day life? How do they avoid being paralyzed by the thought that if they were going to be truly altruistic, they would give away all of their money and spend all of their time working for others? You know, how do they take some effective action that actually improves the world and improves the lives of other people, both in the sense of balancing between their interest in leading a contented life themselves and their interest in doing something for others? And in concrete terms, what should they do after this episode is over to go and make an impact in the world? Well, um, my advice would be, you're probably not a saint. There are very few saints in the world. So don't struggle to become a saint. I think that's too difficult. And it wouldn't be good utilitarian advice to say you've got to be a saint because you're going to lose most people. So I would say, if you have been persuaded by the kinds of things that I've been saying and that the effective altruism movement is saying, then start with something that you're comfortable with, whatever that level might be. You know, I've suggested at various times in the past, giving 10% of your income. In fact, in the life you can save, I now have a more progressive scale, which starts lower than that for people who don't have a lot, starts at giving 1% and goes up to giving a third. If you're earning more than a million dollars a year or something like that, I think you can probably afford to give a lot more than 10%. But start with something you're comfortable with, find effective organizations to help and you know, see how you go. Try and do that for a year. Maybe you're so comfortable with that and you get some reward, personal psychological reward from knowing that you're helping these organizations and you want to go and give more. Maybe you find that that's enough, but you've managed. So I would say, you know, don't stress about the super demanding ethic that utilitarianism can lead to. Go for something realistic and I think you'll be doing some good and you'll be encouraging others to do the same and they'll see that you're comfortable with it and maybe that will actually have better consequences in the long run than struggling to aim something really high. Peter Singer, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. It's been good to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.